All right, here we go. And all right, hello and welcome everybody to our podcast today. I'm with Dr. Sue Futerell, and our topic is the physical, psychological, and spiritual impact of medical trauma. And I'm so honored to have Dr. Sue with us today. I'm gonna give a quick introduction about her and then we'll say hi. Um, and we're gonna hear lots about uh, lots of things that she has to share with us. Dr. Sue Futerell, PhD, LCSWC, uh, certified EAT, is a two-time graduate of the University of Maryland School of Social Work, earning both her master's and PhD degrees there. She has won three awards from University of Maryland, 50 Heroes of Social Justice, an Outstanding Social Worker, Alumni Association, and a Lifetime Achievement Award. Sue worked for the Baltimore County Public School System as a school uh, social worker and has been serving for over 20 years, offering counseling and CISD, critical incident stress debriefing, as well as teaching courses in expressive art therapy, time management, negativity in the workplace, coping skills, ethics, and smoking cessation. Dr. Sue, a Baltimore native, is an adjunct faculty at SDUIS. She has a licensed clinical social worker with 30 years experience in teaching, research, and clinical practice. She earned a BA at Goucher and her MSW and PhD from University of Maryland. She has a second doctorate in addictions counseling focused on drugs, alcohol, sex, food, and gambling addictions. Her clinical work includes individual couples and family counseling. She specializes in working with folks in their work settings who are stressed out. Sue is married and has three married adult children and six grandchildren, Kanainahara. She enjoys drawing, painting, sculpting, clay, and crafts, including knitting and traveling to national parks. It's my honor to have with you a good friend and someone who has taught me so much, Dr. Sue. Welcome. Thank you so much. So um, I have to say, I'm very excited about talking about this topic, obviously something very personal with me. Um, I've been a clinician. Um, I often feel like my entire life since I was about 10 years old, but I didn't have a license to practice then. So I think there were some unusual family circumstances. Um, my mother was very sick when I was a kid and uh, subsequently passed away when I was actually 11. And back then when people were in the hospital, you weren't really allowed to see them. So um, this is a, a topic that's really very important because uh, the amount of people that will be receiving a chronic illness or a rare illness or a cancer diagnosis in our country is just astronomical. And we're seeing those rates climb all over the world. So I don't know if this is affected by climate change or environmental things, but the increase in cancer rates, very, very high, and it's really very concerning. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about was my personal situation, that um, how a person really looks at the emotional healing along with the physical aspects and the spiritual aspects and the familial aspects and maybe the metaphysical ones as well. So um, just to give a brief overview of um, my situation that um, I've been a therapist for many years, like really I felt like I've been doing this work since I was a kid. I've had, oh, I don't know, like 5 million human behavior classes and child development classes and studied all sorts of things about attachment theory, um, from the beginning of life and Tiffany Lamb and the bonding and Mary Ainsworth strange situation procedure up through um, different elements of life as we go through different psychosocial stages. And then of course, looking, you know, at grief and um, just the, the full cycle of life events. So one of the things that totally surprised me was a few years ago, 
Um, actually, uh, it'll be four years this circus on Wednesday, October the 16th of 2019. I was not able to move my arm. And this was in the middle of Cholomoid Sukkot, the Jewish holiday, where um, it's so nice. You invite people over. Nobody has to come in your house. So you don't have to, like, spotlessly clean your house. Everyone's outside in your sukkah, and you just bring out food. It's a wonderful holiday. So what was so nice is that we were very excited. We were having company. And this particular Wednesday, I wanted to get to work early because I wanted to make sure I could leave on time so I could get home and get ready for clients. And that Wednesday morning, 7 o'clock, I was good. 8 o'clock, I was good. 9 o'clock, I was good. 10 o'clock, I had a little bit of a headache. 11 o'clock, I really wasn't feeling well. And by 12 o'clock, I couldn't move. I was dizzy and lightheaded. And I almost thought, I wonder if I'm having some sort of cardiac event. And I was working in a high school and called the school nurse. And unfortunately, she was not available. So I called the school secretary and said, I'm not really feeling so well, um, but I'll keep you posted. And she said, well, you know, if you just need to take a break, put a sign on your door, don't let the kids come in. Well, wouldn't you know it? Shortly, something after 11, um, there was a student who was brand new to my caseload. She was a ninth grader. She'd only been in high school like six weeks. I'd only seen her a handful of times. She was having a little bit of a panic attack, feeling some anxiety. Most of the kids that I worked with were special needs, but I did see some gen ed kids. Of course, there's some that were like neurodivergent, um, some suicidal, some bipolar disorder who were often rapid cyclers. So I was working with a pretty nice array of children with di various diagnoses. So this young lady was feeling some anxiety and she was like, oh, Dr. Sue, could I sit in here with you? Having some anxiety, the cafeteria is way too crowded. Typically there's hundreds of people in the cafeteria, so I get it, it's very noisy. And she was feeling panicky. So I said to this young lady, you know, I'm not feeling very well, blah, blah, blah. Might not be such a good time. Maybe we could talk like later or tomorrow. And she said, oh, please, please, can I sit in here? I, I'll stay on my phone, I promise I won't bother you. So I felt badly for her because I know how these kids with anxiety can get really wound up. And I said, okay, and here she's a ninth grader. She didn't have a support system. She didn't have like, she didn't like bond with any of the teachers at this point that she could go hang out with another adult. I was like, I was a social worker, of course. So she comes in the office and a little bit later, she's, you know, she's eating and she's looking at her phone and she goes, Dr. Sue, are you going to pay us out? And I was very honest with her. I don't know what came over me at that moment. I was like, you know what? I don't know. I don't feel well. If something happens, just push the button over here on the phone. It'll go right to the school secretary and you'll tell them. So anyway, thank God I didn't pass out. I was able to stay conscious, but I had this terrible headache and I was lightheaded. And the craziest thing was my left arm would not move. It was just stuck. I couldn't pick up my computer, my pocketbook, my keys. So anyway, after this young lady left, I called my husband and said, I think I need you to pick me up. I feel sick. And he said, well, just drive home. And I was like, I don't think I can drive. This is very weird. So anyway, so he and my son came to pick me up from work. My son drove my car. I sat with my husband, called the doctor. And the doctor said, well, this is odd. So I went home and took some Tylenol. And I said, you know, I don't know if this is a cardiac thing, but like I'm, I'm dizzy and lightheaded and I don't feel good. And I'm not sure what's going on because... I was a little excited that it was Sukkot and it was a holiday and I thought I was being efficient. Maybe I was getting a little wound up. I wasn't sure myself. And the doctor's office said, you need to get an MRI. And they put me in for an emergency MRI. And I thought, well, that's really kind of weird, but okay. Because they said sometimes maybe if your arm hurts, they could see what's going on. So I didn't think much about it. So I went in later that evening. I was just lying down on the sofa. I didn't feel well. So that was on Wednesday night. And then I had all day Thursday. I still didn't feel any better on Thursday. And then came Friday morning. They saw me in the doctor's office first thing, 8.30 in the morning. And she says to me, 
I think it's time to see a specialist. We found open space lesions. And I'm thinking, well, I did my dissertation on head trauma. So I'm familiar with the term lesions. It's basically a boo-boo. How in the world do you have open space lesions? So this concept made no sense to me. And um, I mean, I was pre-med in college and I tried to stay abreast of different things in the medical community. And so she told me she wanted me to see an oncologist. So of course I got a little teary-eyed and I'm thinking, well, this is not good. My mother died when she was 37 from breast cancer. My little sister died when she was 28 and she had three kinds of cancer. She had um, first osteogenesis sarcoma and then she had lung cancer, bronchial melanoma, and then she had introductory breast cancer and then um, she did pass away. And my my bubby, my grandmother, had four girls, and three of the four girls were diagnosed with breast cancer. All of them have subsequently lost children at a young age, you know, in their 20s, 30s, 40s, um, and had been diagnosed with mostly breast cancer, but there were some other ones also. So when they told me that it, they wanted me to see a cancer specialist, part of me, I was thinking, no, this is probably something weird. I don't have cancer. I'm working. I'm healthy. I exercise, I go to the gym, things are good. And of course, this is literally like a handful of months before COVID hit everybody. Well, anyway, to make a long story short, they sent me for all sorts of tests, x-rays and scans and more doctors. And it took them about a month to figure out what was the matter with me. And unfortunately, I did get a diagnosis of ALL, which is acute lymphoblastic leukemia uh, with Philadelphia chromosome positive, which means I had a genetic mutation. So, and it was the B subtype. There's two types of leukemia, uh, of um, ALL. So there's actually four types of leukemia and I was able to meet with different doctors. And it was so curious to me because, you know, in the Jewish community, there's so many doctors and I thought, well, whatever's going on, they'll take care of this really quickly because it's not like I feel so bad. I had one day of feeling badly. Then I started thinking about all the other things and, you know, different friends had mentioned to me, oh, do you remember the time a few months ago that blah, 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 and a few months back, blah, blah, blah. So other people had noticed some odd things with me. I guess I didn't pay attention so much. I'm not, you know, so wound up in my physical health situation. I was always very focused on everyone else's mental health situation. So um, sure enough, I did get the diagnosis and um, I then I needed to figure out what to do about this because this is a very rare disease. Now, what's interesting, there are four types of leukemia. There's acute lymphoblastic leukemia, acute myelinoid leukemia, there's chronic lymphoblastic leukemia, and chronic myelinoid leukemia. And then every once in a while, they find something a little more unusual, like hairy cell leukemia. So, um, Can I just interject I, for, for one second? So this is all, you know, a, a, a really, um, you know, short synopsis of kind of what happened. Um, what, I'm, what I'm thinking is... Um, can I just interject kind of how, how we met and how that played out with us? And then can I ask you a couple of questions on that? Is that, is that okay? Sure. Oh yeah, that's great. Amazing. Interject whenever you want. Yeah. That'll, that'll help Perfect. focus. Okay. That'll yeah, yeah, I, I think this story is, is, is just so helpful just in hearing everything that you're going through as well. And I really, really appreciate you, you taking the time to share it with us. So um, I'm, I met Dr. Sue um, in, in uh, August, 2018, I was giving a presentation and I was reading through the feedback and I got this really, really beautiful piece of feedback from this presentation on trauma. And there was some comment about, you know, hey, if you ever want somebody to present, give me a call. And so I just figured, you know, this lady sounds nice. She sounds kind. Let me call her. And I called Dr. Sue and she ended up being friends with, you know, Dr. Michael Friedman and who, you know, who owned the, the training company. 
and um, you know they they went they went way back, and you know we we basically live in the same neighborhood and block, and apparently had crossed paths but didn't know each other, and and I got to know Sue, and Sue started giving uh, you know trainings for us, which are just amazing, and uh, as as you're picking up now, just just hearing a little bit, um, you know Dr. Sue is a person who is filled with a wealth of knowledge of information and also with a heart of gold, you know, even, even at a time when she was having a severe medical crisis, she was in there and, you know, had, had a student in there because that student needed help. Um, I, so, and what happened, the way that I found out about all this was we had, we had had a couple of uh, courses from Dr. Sue. Um, and then we had scheduled a few more that were supposed to take place in 2019. And Dr. Sue called me and let me know, you know, I'm having a medical crisis. And for me, I had gotten to know you and, had known you to be somebody who had an unlimited amount of energy and optimism and never had any problems in her life as far as, you know, physical health, et cetera. And I was in shock when it happened. And, 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 you know, I know it took, it took a while for us to figure out what was actually going on, et cetera. Um, so I think just kind of slowing that down for a minute, just for other people, you know, you described so many things you described just what it was like to face, you know, cancer diagnosis, knowing that, you know, how many loved ones in your own family, we're lost to cancer, Rahman Litzlan. And and I just kind of want I, I wanted to maybe just take a moment and just hear a little bit more about that if, if you're okay, just expanding on some of that, uh, just focusing on kind of the, the trauma experience of it. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for your kind words. That's very sweet of you to say. Um yeah, so um just it it really was a big shock. Um I am a trauma specialist. So aside from going to University of Maryland School of Social Work for my master's and PhD, I also took the postgraduate program to become a trauma specialist there. And I've taken some other courses um, as well with Leslie Korn and I have evergreen certifications and so forth. So I have a number of different initials. Um, so it, it was really a very hard thing to kind of wrap my head around because um, your first thought uh, was, uh-oh, is this it? Is this like a warning? Is this like Hamala Hamavas, the angel of death coming to give me like a heads up? Right. You know, like nobody wants to die in a car crash. So this is your heads up. This might be it. You're really sick. It looks like it's cancer and we don't know what's going to happen. And I suppose I had that thought for maybe mm, 30 to 45 seconds. And I thought, uh-oh, is this really bad? And then it was like, you know what? Whatever is in me, I have to use all my energy and everything in me to daven, to pray, and to figure out what's going on. And one of the things that made me feel more comfortable was to do a lot of research. Now, I was the one in the family, because I was so aware of all the different cousins that had passed away, I kept pretty good records of tracking everything. And there's a facility in New York. Well, New York, of course, has everything, right? I know we have Hopkins and we have Maryland here in Baltimore. But at Hopkins, they have the Sloan Kettering Center and they have the strong cancer research people in New, in New York. Yeah. They, right. Up in New York. Yeah. So I was corresponding with people to send them what they called a family pedigree and we were tracking everybody. So we put down my Bubby Chava um, and she's such an interesting person. My Bubby was married, but actually both Bubbies were married um, by the time they were 16 and had their first child. Wow. So um, this Bubby came from Russia, from the town of Svinichi. And there's a whole family organization called Svinichas. And it's very curious to me how, and I'm sure there was a lot, you know, this was to keep everybody in the Jewish in the family. And the people were very involved in trading and uh, they traveled a lot. There was a lot of, you know, trades and spices and food things that were going on. So it was interesting to sort of follow, you know, like, you know, all, all of my aunts. So Chava, like I said, had the four girls, 
Um, my Aunt Esther had breast cancer and colon cancer. My Aunt Sylvie actually had heart disease. Um, she died in her 60s. And my mother was the third one, Mindel. She died at 37. And then the youngest one um, was Bela. And she's actually still living. She's 90. But she wow. also took tamoxifen and didn't get diagnosed with breast cancer until much later on. So wow. all of these aunts have lost people. My Aunt Esther, the oldest one, lost her oldest daughter to breast cancer and colon cancer and a second son to the second kid to kidney cancer. And that third daughter is still living. So, so, so they get the pedigree and then I guess that's used for like a treatment plan. Exactly. Yeah. So one of the first things that I requested is whatever's going on is like, Oh my goodness, we need to do genetic testing. And I'm really glad that we did because, um, since that time, I've actually had a bone marrow transplant, so I have all new blood. Um, my bone marrow donor is um, a little girl in the Israeli army, as cute as she can be. We met each other on Zoom through Ezer Metzion. Never met her face-to-face. -face. Yeah. Although my daughter actually went to Israel and did meet her. So, But now my, my um, the genetic part of me has changed because I have all new blood. Right. So they can't really do those genetic studies. But it is concerning because, excuse me, since that time... My husband also received a cancer diagnosis and two of our biological children also carry a cancer diagnosis. Um, different cancers, you know, we're all different because that's that, how we, we all like to be different. Cancer diagnosis means uh, like a potential for something genetically. No. Or you mean no. actual? They've already been diagnosed with cancer and they've received either chemotherapy, radiation or surgery. Gotcha. Yeah. We're foolish slamming it to everybody. Thank you. Baruch Hashem, everybody's doing really pretty well. Good. So <laughs> I wanted to just kind of circle back again, and I hope I hope you don't mind me asking. I know I know it's personal, and um, when you said kind of that thought about how, oh my gosh, is this the end? Like, you know, I was in a car accident. I remember watching the car come towards me and thinking this is the end, but obviously it got resolved moments later when, thank God, we were all alive. It was a head-on collision for both of us. We were, we were both okay. It took a while. It took a few minutes, maybe a few days of shock, but... I would imagine that going through a medical trauma like that probably has a lot more shock to it. Now, I know you as a very resilient person, you know, in the clients that you work with, I, I just, do you feel that like people normally go about it with so much optimism and so much positivity that you have, or is there something that you were tapping into that you were able to do that? That's, that's kind of my question. I know you're a very optimistic person to begin with. And I know that when, when I would speak to you during your process, you know, I would call feeling down about how you were doing and you would cheer me up. So I know that's part of your personality as well, but I just want to kind of like try to distill, like, what is it that you were tapping into that gave you that, you know, Hey, am I dying? Well, it doesn't matter because I'm just going to focus on living. Like, like right. where did that come from? Cause I want some of that. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. So part of me thinks, well, maybe it came from the grandkids. You know, I'm, I'm not really sure like this. Uh, there was just this huge amount of energy that was very, um, very motivating to say the least. So part of it, um, there were definitely some hardships. So in that first month, because we didn't, it took a month to get a diagnosis. So nobody really would say what was the matter with me. One person said, maybe it's a shoulder infection. One person said, oh, you must have like a really bad injury and you didn't realize it. And they still went back to this open space lesion. Like how would somebody get that? So um, what was very unusual is while I was trying to get diagnosed, I was actually being turned down. So here's kind of a funny story. My oldest son, had his bar mitzvah 
Uh, his Hebrew birthday is the 5th of Av, so his bar mitzvah was Shabbos Nachamu, Biaschanan. There was another kid in his class. He was a TA. And there was another little boy who had the same bar mitzvah parsha. So I called the mom and said, you know, both our boys have Biaschanan. They both have the same bar mitzvah. Let's work it out so we can have separate parties so everybody can come to each other's parties. And she thanked me and told me how they had people from out of town. And I was like, well, one of us could do Sunday morning. One could do Sunday night because it's the middle of the summer. It'll be late. She said, well, she's got so many people. Could I do Saturday night? And she could have Sunday. So I said, of course. Anyway, so this little boy who has the same bar mitzvah parsha as my son has grown up to become like a head oncology guy at one of the local hospitals in Baltimore. Wow. So he called me directly. So it was. I, I was so honored that he would call me and talk to me. He's a big shot doctor now. I'm thinking, I remember you at your bar mitzvah, you know, and he's telling me, you know, what he's doing. So he said, well, send me all your scans and send me all your tests. Well, I was really surprised because I had been to a couple of hospitals in Baltimore and people were saying, mm, I don't know what you have, but we can treat you. And that was very discouraging. So again, I had this other, you know, 30 seconds of you know, intense grief going, oh my God, this is really bad. Now I have a bad diagnosis, a rare disease. They're finding out more and more about it. Um, and typically leukemia is something that children get. So now I have a children's disease. So I started making a joke that like, oh, they found it in my humorous bone. Ha ha, because it's humor. And I have a children's disease. So I'm in touch with my inner child. So it was so unreal that this was happening. I just sort of started making jokes. But then after that, um, you know, and some of these doctors wouldn't see me. And um, so my husband actually went to the rabbi of our shul and uh, we dove in at Suburban and he talked to Rabbi Silver and Rabbi Silver said, you know, one of the big shots in the cancer world Davin's at our shul. Can I share this stuff with him? I was like, sure. So we sent over, you know, like, I don't know, three little discs of scans and maybe 25 pages of test results. And the guy said, yeah, you need to come to University of Maryland. And I was like, hmm, I don't know. When my little sister was treated, she was at Hopkins. I think I want to talk to the people at Hopkins. So we talked to the people at Hopkins and they told me, no, they didn't even give me a reason. I didn't know if I didn't fit a research study or they were full or they didn't have, they didn't want to deal with me. But anyway, Hopkins said no. So by default, I was at the University of Maryland. And like, thank God it worked out really well because the doctors there were just amazing. And I always have this bias growing up in the Jewish community that I always want my doctors to be Jewish. And of course, they set me up with this African-American woman who's as cute as she could be. She was kind of like a little bit chunky and really sweet. And she was brilliant. And she pulls up the computer and she starts telling me about blood, everything you would want to know about blood and bones and the disease of leukemia. She was amazing. And all I I could do was like, you know what? I'm going to do more research. And she said, good, because she had a professorship at Maryland. She was big shot, you know. And um, so she and I started navigating all sorts of things that we could do together to get a good handle on what the different protocols would be. Amazing. And I, I appreciate um, that part of the story as well, because, you know, in, in our Jewish community, and I think in many Jew in many communities, you know, we trust people that are you know, like-minded. Um, and I, you know, but yet as you and I have had our life experiences, there's so much we could learn from, you know, non-Jews um, and and so much collaboration. So I, I appreciate that insight in itself. Right. Thank you. Yeah. So um, yeah, her name was Dr. Nian Gear. I'm still in touch with her. Actually, I'm going to see her uh, in two weeks. 
So she has followed me throughout this entire journey of almost four years, and she's made all the arrangements. And she would make jokes. She's going to be like, oh, you're not going to like me, but I'm going to throw you in the hospital for a week, and we're going to, you know, put you in an IV with, like, all sorts of toxic medicines, and you're going to be really sick, and you'll throw up, but I'm going to get you better. And we would both laugh about it, like, you know, I I hate throwing up. I threw up when I was pregnant. That's not fun. You know, girls are very sensitive to throwing up. And I'm always extra sensitive because I worked with eating disorder patients for a while, you know, in different hospitals, inpatient and outpatient. And I was like, I don't know, I'm really not good at throwing up. So sure enough, of course, that's what happened. And um, not only do you throw up, but like your hair falls out, there's a lot of side effects. You get a lot of bruising, just weird things happen to your body. So one thing that was very helpful is I had asked the people at, at the show in the Jewish community you know, to pray for me. And typically what Jewish people say is when they're sick is to heal them, which would be the Psalms of David. And someone had said to me, there was a big women's to heal group that meets every Sunday. And I thought, oh, this is perfect. And um, we talked to the people who run the group and they said they would take my name. And I said, thank you. And then they said, well, you should be in the group. You can't just like give us your name and go away. And I was like, I don't know. That sounds a little arrogant. I don't think you should be in your own Tehillim group. And she said, go ask your rabbi. So I did. So I asked the rabbi, can I be in my own Tehillim group? And he was like, yes. In fact, it's extra special if you dive in for yourself. So that's kind of one of the things that I did. So I went on Facebook and I told everybody, please dive in for me. Here's my Hebrew name, Shalom Tova Bat Mindel, because you put it in your mother's name. It's actually named for my grandfather. It's kind of funny for religious families. Um, both of my parents had lost their dads when they were teenagers. In fact, my dad's dad died before his bar mitzvah, and he was out of Avelis by the time of his bar mitzvah. And my mom's dad had died when she was a teenager. So that what I was the who were you your name for? Who what was his name? I was named for um, my mom's father. What was, what was his Hebrew name? Oh, Shlomo Tadris. How that how that translated to Mindel? Oh, the Mindel is my mother. My mother was Mindel. Oh, I see. So. It- Shlomo, it turned into- right. So Shlomo, they made Shlomit and Tadris, they made Tova, gotcha. and then my Mindel. Gotcha, gotcha. Interesting. Right. So, yeah. so with all this, you know, what obviously, you know, just to kind of recap and 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 come back, um, you know, you you've come back to us, which was a very big um celebration, and you gave a medical trauma uh, training on diagnosis, treatment, and support interventions, which I'll I'll put the uh, the links in the show notes, you you gave a tr- uh, training about the emotional healing of a cancer patient. And you talked a lot about of uh, you know, the homeopathic things that you've learned and and the just dealing with chronic pain and, and follow up. Um, you wrote two books, I believe, right? One right. of them you gave yes. me. Um, the other one I haven't. Um, I, uh, hopefully you'll be able to show it to everybody. Um, but, you know, you wrote two books for children. Um, right. You know, going through what you're going through, which is also amazing. Could, could you tell us about that just a little bit? Right. Okay. Yes. So one of the certifications that I hold is what we call EAT, expressive arts therapy. And that's basically the idea we're using art therapy, music therapy, psychodrama, drama therapy, poetry therapy, journaling. Um, So it's not that much different than complementary and um, alternative medicine. And I'm absolutely a big fan of that. In fact, I presented at the SIO conference, Society for Integrative Oncology last year in the fall, um, telling them my story. So one of the things I think you have to think about of course, are the five stages of grief and the different factors that are involved when you're dealing with a cancer diagnosis. And and, um, we talk a lot about the shared decision-making. So let me tell you a little bit about the book. So um, 
of course, it's very stressful. So this was one of the things I thought was very funny. I'll kind of hold it up here. This is a Dr. Seuss hat, like the cat in the hat stress ball. So this is fun. So I got these for all the people at the cancer center because that was silly. And I'll hold this up. This was the first book I wrote, which was um, Susie Q Fights Leukemia. Susie Q Fights Leukemia. We'll, we'll link right. that in the show notes as well. Okay. And it's on Amazon. And I'll just read you the first paragraph to let you know. Now, what's really cute about this is my granddaughter did all the drawings because it was, you know, we had a plan. Um, typically, like I think every Thursday we were picking up the kids from school and then we would go to 7-Eleven and get Slurpees and then we would, you know, come back to my house and I'd make dinner and then everybody would come over and then we'd pick another day to pick up my daughter's kids. And so we always had the kids that we were very actively involved with the kids doing homework, the PTA things and all of that. So it was how, how old was she when, how around how old was she when she illustrated that? Nine. She was nine years old. So just, just old. To, yeah, just, just to kind of talk about that for a moment, you know, as an expressive art therapist, obviously when, when Bubby has cancer, it's scary. So there's a right. certain element of therapeutic intervention to have her, you know, draw it out and understand what's going on as well, which right. I imagine was probably beneficial for her as well. It really was. I gave her, it was so interesting because I gave her a sketchbook and some colored pencils. And I said, um, I, well, I didn't really know I was going to write a book. I was mostly writing poems. I was in the hospital driving the nurses crazy. And of course, by 2020, there was COVID. And it got to the point where we weren't allowed um, to leave the rooms. I had a month in the hospital. Well, there were multiple hospitalizations where you're not allowed to have any visitors. And I would just sit in the room and I took, I had my paints with me because they tell you to pack up things for your hobbies. But sometimes you just can't even get out of bed because you feel so sickly. So I started writing and it was like, this is so stupid. How did I get leukemia? I'm in my 60s. I'm all grown up. I'm above you. I'm supposed to be sick. I'm busy. So I started writing. I don't even know. It was like, come to me in a dream. And I started writing. And it was the kind of, it was really a very intense visceral response. If I didn't write, it was almost like that feeling like you have to throw up and you have like a little burp, but you know that you're really nauseous. It's just not good enough. And that's how it was with the writing. It was like, I just had to get it out of my system. And I started dreaming these thoughts. And it's kind of become a joke amongst everybody in the family that we we all talk in silly poems and we write things. So my book starts with, once upon a time, a long, long time ago, far, far away in the land of CA. CA is the abbreviation they use for cancer. There lived Lou and a little girl named Susie Q. And she was a happy little girl who loved to sing and dance and twirl. But when she met Lou, all she could say was boo-hoo. And um, so that's kind of, so the book goes like that. It's written in the theme of Dr. Seuss, and it's very silly. But because most people who get this diagnosis are children, and it, it's so sad. Um, I know University of Maryland has a whole, the fifth floor is all the uh, pediatric oncology kids. And Hopkins, of course, has multiple units for pediatric oncology. My sister was probably one of the oldest kids in the pediatric oncology unit at Hopkins. So I've been able to give a lot of the books that I wrote, you know, to people with cancer. And and after that, there were, you know, I think in the beginning, it was like my relatives who were buying them. And then shortly after that, we saw they were going to like some big hospitals and um, to, you know, the pediatric oncology units. And I thought that that was very good. But when and, you think that- some of your story, your story was featured on a uh, national channel as well. Yeah. For, uh, and, and a couple of other research. So so it definitely went out. What what age range would you say that book is mostly for, for Susie I Q? Think, yeah, the book, it's probably really for people like five to 12. That's what I thought, yeah. Kids. Yeah. 
But the truth is, I mean, there there are people who have a diagnosis when they're, they're like two years old. There are a lot of two-year-olds with this diagnosis. So some of the kids, you know, may just look at the pictures and see, oh, a boo-boo, you know, in here, you know, oh, look, this is sad and we might cry. And then there's a picture um, where Susie Q has like long blonde hair. And then the next picture is Susie Q is bald and she's holding a hat over her head to put the hat on because she lost all her hair. But yeah. it's the idea that you'll get better and we make a joke like, you know, tell the cancer to leave me alone. Don't call me on my phone. I'm busy. So, you know, there were a lot of things that were in there, but I think part of it, when, when you're faced with a crisis situation, of course you draw on all your inner strengths, you draw, you know, your family. And, um, I have friends who are calling me or, or different family members almost every day. People were doing food shopping. My son put together a meal train, like when you have a new baby and people are delivering your meals so that people were taking care of my husband. And, you know, of course he was in touch with the realm of the shul and the community. And it was very nice, but you start to look at how, do, how, how do you move forward with this? And there are people who actually study how people change. And this is fun to think about the different stages of change. And when you want to make a change in your life, no matter whether you want to go on a diet and lose some weight, or you want to, you know, work as hard as you can to heal from a cancer diagnosis. The first part is called pre-contemplation. And that's the first stage. That's when you're thinking, well, you need to make a change, not sure what direction to go in, but it's pre-contemplation. You're thinking about it. And the second stage is actually the contemplation where you start thinking about what do you want to change? How do you move forward? And um, people, you know, who are psychologists and counselors, social workers, therapists, really look at this and they broke it down into different stages. The next stage is the action stage, the behavior. How do you make a behavioral change? And what would they be? What are the action steps? You know, and it's like putting together a task analysis, you know, step one, step two, step three. Next would come a relapse prevention. What happens if you think you made some changes, but you're not really all the way there yet? So you need a relapse prevention, just like you would with addictions. And then the last stage is really that maintenance phase where you can keep that going. And I think those stages of change are really important in in any event that a person is dealing with any challenge. And we all have challenges in life. You know, sometimes your challenge can be like getting a kid to go to bed, getting your kids to do their homework, you know, dealing with aging parents. Many people are in that sandwich generation. So there's so many things that come up in life. But I think the strategies of a cancer patient are so different because there was a time where that diagnosis really did imply death, that this was this was be the end of your physical being on earth. And um, I can't say, you know, why I'm still here. I, I tried to do all the things the doctors told me to do, you know, took all those stupid, in, the infusions and radiation treatment and surgeries, um, you know, and the chemotherapy and the protocols that they put together. Um, and then, of course, ending with a bone marrow transplant. So the interesting thing is um, most people get like a five-year, you know, look like after five years, you're maybe considered cured or you're considered in remission. Well, clear, I'm not at the five-year mark, but I still have these ongoing things. I did have the bone marrow transplant. And, um, and after that, you know, they keep measuring your blood to see how much of the donor blood takes over your blood so you don't make any more leukemia, bad cancerous blood cells. And so actually what's been happening is my chimerism numbers have been dropping. They went from 100%, then they dropped to the 90s, and then the 80s and the 70s. So in the last year or so, I've had 
three what we call DLIs, donor leukocyte infusions. And those are basically like little mini bone marrow transplants. And when you have those, you have to take the, the reject, anti-rejection drugs, just like if you had a kidney transplant. You have to take tacrolimus and some other medications along those lines. And they're horrible because they make you feel nauseous. Everything in cancer makes you feel nauseous. So um, anyway, so it's a little bit tricky because my my um, I've had the three DLIs and they can't do any more because then you're at risk for getting what we call GVHD. It's like alphabet soup here. GVHD is graft versus host disease. And I have that. I have the acute and the chronic. And um, I actually made a movie for the GVHD people. It's called GVHD Speaks. It's an organization that addresses how people deal with the side effects from a bone marrow transplant. And in terrible cases, people actually have had um, liver problems and health problems. Typically, you get itchy. Your skin feels very, very itchy, and you're just itching. You feel like a doggy with fleas. You're just itchy all the time. So anyway, I have prescription medication for that as well. But um, Just so to it's circle back bit, for, um, yeah. what, was, what was the name of the other the second book that you wrote? So, oh, okay, thank you. So the second book um, is called Susie Q Gets a BMT. And, and that's for uh, what age group specifically? So again, about five to 12, probably gotcha. so. Although I have to tell you, I've given this to adults as well. And it's nice because on the second book, Penny had worked so hard. So her picture is actually on the back of the second book. You nice. know, in a little section. That's her, grand, her granddaughter. Right, my granddaughter. Amazing. Right? So she was nine and a half. And so it's so funny. She made so many silly pictures um, when we talked to her about how the bone marrow was the part that's inside the bone, like when you're born, like a newborn baby would have 300 bones, but the bones fuse together. And as you grow up, you an adult has 206 bones and there's three parts to the bone. You can feel like the bony matter. You can feel like the end. And then there's the tendons and muscles that connect the bones to the other things in your body. And then there's the bone marrow, which is that little skinny tube inside in the very center part of the bone that produces the red blood cells, the white blood cells, and the platelets. So right. my problem is with the white blood cells, that there were too many of them. They stayed immature. They didn't die. They didn't grow up. Your white blood cells are supposed to fight the infections. And mine clearly didn't do that. They had bad behavior and they got together and made little tumors. They made little tumors and made a lot of trouble, unfortunately. But we're so happy that you're... <laughs> past that major part of the saga. We're, we're so happy that you're here. I just have one final question because we're just about out of time. Um, just If you could just leave us off with kind of a parting message or resources or lesson or something that you could share. Um, you know, this has just been really, really helpful to understand some of the things that you've been through. And I'm sure for people that are going through it now, you know, we wish them a speedy recovery as well. But just, just to hear, you know, someone with so much positivity and there's so many tips that you said, just whether it's following the doctor's advice, becoming educated, you know, being respectful of other cultures and knowing people have things to teach us, understanding what it's like, you know, to deal with a diagnosis and uh, having a family support, which I think is an amazing thing. And, you know, so, so many beautiful things that just any other resources or places of inspiration that you would push up, you know, share. Right. So I think for people with leukemia, one of the best things would, um, there's some wonderful leukemia organizations. In fact, in the world of cancer, there's probably about 20 or 30 different organizations. I know there, there are all sorts of websites, the American Cancer Society and, you know, leukemia and lymphoma organization. So there's a, you know, depending on which cancer you type you have and who's, you know, to study it. I think it's so important that people have a little bit of medical control. You know, I suppose if a person has hay fever, I don't think you have to know everything in the world about pollen, you know, you know, if you're allergic to cut grass or if you yeah. have peanut allergies, you know, uh, people have, our bodies respond differently to different things, to different events, 
um, in our life, whether it's a life cycle event or just, you know, environmental changes. So I really felt that it's very important for a person to become knowledgeable and well-educated and not to be biased and racist and prejudiced about people who are outside of your culture. It was very interesting for me to learn about, you know, what the shamans were doing and what indigenous populations in Native American cultures were doing, as well as abroad, and what healing practices people had in mind. But I think one of the biggest parts is the psychology, that if to, to learn it and to study it and to be accepting of it, and you have to live with it. Amazing. Amazing. And, Thank you so much, Dr. Sue. Is there a way that people could reach you if they have any questions specifically, an email address maybe, or? Oh. Absolutely. Right. So um, my my private email is suemyrowitz at gmail.com. So it's S-U-E-M-Y-R-O-W-I-T-Z at gmail.com. Amazing. And otherwise, it's Sue Futerall on Facebook. I have I run lots of Facebook groups. So that's pretty Amazing. fun. They could, they could check you up there. Um, yeah. I'll put that in the show notes as well. Thank you okay. so much for your time and inspiration. And I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, bring us into your inner world and share so many lessons with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye.